Jonas Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Jonas Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Woo! Thanks for being here this Wednesday, December 7th. We have a victory in Georgia to celebrate. Though I will say, yesterday we talked to Greg Pallast, who has been a student of voter suppression, <clears throat> voter disenfranch- disenfranchisement, um, voter repudiation in Georgia. And he was very concerned when we spoke to him yesterday at the end of the show. He said that despite the fact that, you know, everybody thinks Raphael Warnock is going to be the victor, he said you can't understand the voter suppression and how difficult Brian Kemp has made it for black people, especially to vote, you know, taking away polling places, taking away drop boxes, doing everything they can to hinder participation in the process. He was very concerned that Warnock might not win. Warnock did, but I am telling you, it was not the five point victory that Rick Smith predicted It was a squeaker. And I'm reading a lot of things this morning that say, you know, um, you know, uh, analyzing, you know, where the Republicans went wrong. How about having a candidate that was a little bit crazy? But this isn't not getting the vote out. This isn't Democrats not doing what they're supposed to do. This is a miracle victory in the face of of incredible voter suppression. Brian Kemp has done everything as governor and formerly as secretary of state to purge people from the voter rolls who were likely to vote Democratic to make it more difficult. He studied the ways that black Georgians tend to vote. They they prefer to vote early. They want to use drop boxes. So what do you do? You take all the drop boxes up. You make them unavailable. You curtail early voting. You specifically put in place measures under the guise of, oh, we're going to make sure it's free and fair elections. You put in place measures that make it more complicated and more time consuming for the people to vote who you don't want to vote. The people who you know are not going to go your way. It's wonderful that Georgia is contributing to Democratic senators. It is wonderful that in the Senate, Democrats now have a 51-vote majority. But Georgia has got to start focusing on governor's races, secretary of state races, the people in the legislature who control the maps. You know, you can do all of the phone banking and all the postcarding and all the door knocking that you want, but if the maps are drawn in such a way as to dilute Democratic votes and shore up minority Republican votes, then that is sometimes a wall that is insurmountable. Good Georgia. Great Georgia. You're sending Raphael Warnock back to the Senate. That is terrific. Now we got to focus on somebody who can beat Brian Kemp and Brad Raffenberger. We need Georgia 
to be ungerrymandered. We need voting to be easier and more readily available. This is why Dan Schaefer and I were talking about the Wisconsin State Supreme Court race. Yes, I know it seems like I'm suddenly making a strange segue here, but it's not. Wisconsin is also one of the most gerrymandered states in the nation. It makes it really hard to elect anybody to a state senate or a state legislature a representative spot who isn't a Republican. In Ohio, they are so gerrymandered, the court said that the map was not viable. And what did the Republicans do? They ignored it, used the same map anyway. And now now Ohio is no longer considered a swing state. It is considered a red state. We have got to make inroads in state legislatures. We have got to ungerrymander. It becomes especially more critical. The Supreme Court is hearing a case Now, I guess the good news is we're going to talk to uh, Carolyn Shapiro at 3.30 about this. She's our Supreme Court expert. The good news is that from the basic questioning that the justices are doing, uh, they appear to be skeptical, but they are hearing a case that could potentially give state government officials the ability to decide on their own, separate from the vote, Who wins and who loses elections? That's terrifying. That is terrifying. Right now, essentially in this country, we have minority rule. And the way you undo that is you take over the states. Yes, what happens in Congress is important. But we have learned the hard way. If you don't have the state legislatures backing you up, you have a cracked foundation. Anyway, let's savor the win. It was a squeaker, but Raphael Warnock is going back to the Senate to represent Georgia. I want to share with you uh, what he had to say when he was making his acceptance speech. Here's just a little tiny snippet. Listen to this. And after a hard-fought campaign, or should I say campaigns, it, it is my honor to utter the four most powerful words ever spoken in a democracy. The people have spoken. Oh, isn't that great to hear? And um, we heard again today from Christian Walker. Christian Walker is one of Herschel Walker's children. Herschel Walker, the Republican who faced off against Raphael Warnock. Christian Walker initially supported his father's campaign, but then broke with him and said that he couldn't, he could no longer tolerate his father's lying. Uh, 
He said, you know, when his father first decided to run for office, he was under the impression that he was going to acknowledge the bad things he had done. He was going to apologize for them and move on. But instead, Herschel Walker just denied everything, denied paying for girlfriends, abortions, denied violence against women. And uh, Christian Walker broke with him very, very publicly. Christian Walker posted this on social media. Don't beat women. Hold guns to people's heads. Fund abortions, then pretend you're pro-life. Stalk cheerleaders. Leave your multiple minor children alone to chase more fame. Lie, lie, lie. Say stupid crap and make a fool of your family. And then maybe you can win a Senate seat. That was uh, Christian Walker posting that last night. Some I was reading one of the, my newsletters today, and they were saying, you know, now that he has been defeated, he will probably go back to Texas, which is always where he's lived. And they were saying that we really hope he gets the help he needs once he's there. I doubt it. I doubt that very seriously. This is not a man who has had to deal with the consequences of his actions in too many venues in life. So, Georgia runoff. The good, the bad, the ugly. Um, Time magazine, not surprisingly, but appropriately, has uh, picked Vladimir Zelensky as their... Time Person of the Year. Volodymyr Zelensky and the Spirit of Ukraine. There simply couldn't have been another choice this year. You know, the man was a stand-up comedian. Yes, he was interested in Ukraine and politics, but he was a comedian. And he ran for office. And the events that have unfolded since then have really, really revealed what happens when you have somebody with a strong moral core. You know, we elected a reality show host as president. And some people were hoping that the same thing would happen, that he would surprise us all with his character. Instead, we discovered that he, uh, he brought his mob boss philosophy to the White House. In Ukraine, they have gotten very, very lucky. They have gotten somebody who could have disappointed them, but has turned out to be so courageous and so brave and so staunch in their support of their country their negotiations with the West, and their stance against Vladimir Putin. A perfect choice for Time Magazine for Person of the Year. Perfect, perfect choice. You know, he should be Person of the Year next year, too, if we don't get this damn war wrapped up. Let's take a break. Um, There's some um, Trump classified documents news. Yeah, we'll talk about that and uh, maybe take a call or two when we come right back after this. 
Take Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive with you on the go by using the TuneIn app on your phone. Just search for WCPT 820. WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. Don't turn that dial. A dangerous mistake to make. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. We are going to talk a little bit about the news of the day before we move on to other questions. Uh, Brad from Elk Grove Village is calling in to join the conversation. Hello, Brad. How are you today? Hi. um, I think the Supreme Court ought to be um, given a picture of the future should they um, let state legislators have the ability to call an election. The amount of chaos, unrest, and just general protest will make the 2020 protests over the George Floyd killing, uh, George Floyd, yeah, mm-hmm. um, killing, look like kindergarten in comparison. Um, and if they do that, and there's a Democrat in the White House, they will look to expand the Supreme Court Right then and there, I know Biden has no pace for it, but that would be. I agree with you. I think you're absolutely correct on that, Brad. I think the Supreme Court has. I mean, they've got to be aware of the ramifications of these decisions they're making, not only legally, but societally. And I think I think that they I, I believe in my heart that they now understand that they can't just enact their far-right agenda, which they may have thought they could have at one point and gotten away with it. And I think you're right. I think if the Supreme Court continues to make anti-democratic decisions, I think that the next president will definitely explore adding seats to the court. And, you know, um, Tom Hartman and I were talking about this a little bit the other day. And he said that, you know, Franklin Delano Roosevelt dealt with a court that was really thwarting all the things he was trying to do. And finally, they were going to go after like Social Security. And he started exploring the idea of adding seats to the court. And they immediately at the thought of their power being watered down and not being able to make the big decisions, the conservatives folded and backed away and left him alone after that. And I know you're absolutely right. Right now, Biden has made it clear. I'm a little unsure whether he just doesn't want to mess with the court or whether he thinks he doesn't have the votes to pull it off or whether he's afraid it would be unpopular. I don't know. Um, but Biden has made it clear he doesn't want to consider adding seats to the Supreme Court right now. But if they keep making decisions that restrict our liberties and take away our rights, I think that there will be a groundswell of people like you and me, Brad, who insist that something be done. Oh, and and they will the the unrest will, like I say, when I say unrest, 
I'm talking, I'm talking, uh, what, um, I'm talking hell on earth. I, I'm talking. Oh, if, if they let this stand. There won't be enough police. There won't be enough police. Yeah. And if they let something like this stand and give the states this kind of control with no oversight by anybody federal or the state courts, I think you're absolutely right. I think it'll be I think it'll be pandemonium. We think we live in a divided country now when when Republicans in various states realize that they have the a pathway to ultimate control. I I think it's what what we're living in now is going to look like the good old days. Brad, thank you so much for the call. Yeah, um, I want to try to get another caller in before we wrap up. Uh, Mark is calling from Lake Barrington. Hey, Mark, how are you today? Hey, Joan, I'm fine. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Okay. Uh, What's this waiting business? Day one of the new Congress with 51 senators. You start expanding the court immediately. No nonsense. You can't trust or negotiate with the other side. You've proven that over and over again. Don't waste the opportunity. Just start adding. We need two or three Supreme Court justices that understand, you know, telecommunications, understand the Internet, understand many things that these old codgers don't understand at all. And we need a couple of guys who could sit back and understand that we're in, we aren't in a post-racial society. And if they're not going to do it, don't wait for them by keeping letting them make decisions. You know, Mark, at 3.30 today, I'm going to be joined by Carolyn Shapiro. She's a law professor and she specializes in the Supreme Court. And I'm going to ask her exactly who has the power and what steps would have to be taken and what kinds of approvals would have to be given for the Supreme Court to be expanded. So thank you. I'm making a note of your comment right now. And we're going to I'm going to at three thirty. That's one of the things I'm going to ask her to explain to us. Right, because there's no reason. I mean, McConnell held back. So we can just say, look, this is for uh, Gorsuch, who was illegally put on the court, you know, and that's who this guy is. The next guy and the next guy. Um, Anyway, thank Thank you you for that. Yeah, I'm I'm making a note so I don't forget to ask Carolyn that. Thank you for the thank you for the call, Mark. Um, Before we uh, wrap this up and move on, I do want to share with you. In the Washington Post today, uh, Trump's lawyers have found more classified documents. <laughs> shocked. I know you're shocked. Apparently, lawyers for Donald Trump, I don't know whether they did this at the request of the DOJ or um, whether they're just trying to get out in front of this, but apparently they went to Trump Tower. They said they didn't find any classified documents there. They went to his Bedminster, New Jersey golf property and his residence there. They claim they found no classified documents there, but, but there was apparently some kind of storage locker in Florida that the uh, president had, former president. And when they searched that storage locker, uh, they found more 
classified documents, which were reportedly by the Washington Post, immediately turned over to the FBI. How many searches took place in how many places we can't be 100 percent sure of. We do know that these lawyers said that they searched on the Trump Tower in New York. They searched the golf course and his residence in New Jersey at Bedminster. And they searched the storage locker and oopsie, oopsie, found some classified documents in the storage locker. Better get these to the FBI. (sighs) Oh, and one last national political note you may have seen. The Republican representative from Arizona, Andy Biggs, has formally announced that he is going to challenge Kevin McCarthy to be the next speaker. Now, Andy Biggs, he's um, he's a magite. He's pretty far right. I can't imagine that he could get to 218. But if he can take away enough votes from McCarthy, then McCarthy is going to have to make more promises to the far right to get them to vote for him. So my, unless... Somehow the moderates in Congress, the moderate Republicans, somehow decide um, to support Andy Biggs, which seems unlikely on the face of it. It seems like Mr. Biggs could at best be a spoiler or force Kevin McCarthy to capitulate more. You know, Kevin McCarthy is um, supposedly burning up the phone lines you know, promising anything to anybody to get their vote. Andy Biggs throwing his hat into the ring so publicly is more pressure for Kevin McCarthy to capitulate to the far right. If the moderate Republicans really want to counterbalance this, they should throw out a name themselves and make Kevin McCarthy negotiate with that side as well. Ah, politics. We are going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about propaganda. That and more right after this. This is WCPT 820, where you can hear the Stephanie Miller Show every weekday, 8 to 11 a.m., because facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT 820. There is a book you might be interested in taking a look at. It is called Propaganda 2.1, Understanding Propaganda in the Digital Age. We've just lived through a midterm, and we are coming up in two more years on another presidential election. And being able to discern propaganda, especially the stuff that comes at us digitally, has literally never been more important in our lives. The author of that book, Peter Fallon, joins us now. Hello, Peter. How are you? Hi, Joan. I'm good. How are you? I'm good. How are things at Roosevelt these days? Well, we're plugging along like everybody else in academia. (laughs) Uh, One of my favorite places in Chicago. So what inspired you to choose to write about propaganda? Oh, this is a a book uh, many years in the making. I, I read uh, the, the classic text on propaganda in graduate school. Uh, it's called Propaganda by uh, Jacques Ellul. And um, 
I realized, along with uh, with the help of my students, that he didn't anticipate the new digital media environment, where centralized control, as in broadcasting or other mass media, is essentially stripped away and everybody has a chance to speak. Uh, that's both a good thing and a dangerous thing. Uh, and I think, um, you know, I have to tell you, I think we're focusing on the danger uh, in an unfortunate way, disproportionately to the opportunities that it gives us, especially in a democracy. I have a question I realize that maybe I should have started with, Peter, of a definition of propaganda. I, when, I, when I hear the word propaganda, I assume that it, it to me it's a spin, maybe not an outright lie, but certainly on information that has been massaged to serve a certain interest. How would you define propaganda? Well, a spin is a form of propaganda. And fake news is a form of propaganda. And one of the things that Alul uh, explains to us in his book, which is from the 1960s, by the way, it was 1962, it was published in the United States, is that propaganda is really nothing more than mass-mediated information. It has no... The, the, and we don't understand it this way. I know this, it, this goes... This throws the popular understanding of the word propaganda on its head. Propaganda is any message, whether it's true or it's false, that's mass-mediated, because the mass-mediated image, the mass-mediated word, has the power to, to reach thousands and millions of people. And we can't not be influenced by that. So propaganda can be true. And in fact, our intelligence agencies understand this. They have different categories, you know, white propaganda, black propaganda, gray propaganda. Uh, we, we too often think of the word propaganda in terms of lies, falsehoods, manipulation. Mm -hmm. But even our, our very reality is, uh, and you know, it's, a, it's, it's kind of a, a, a tenet of sociology that that uh, um, reality is a socially constructed phenomenon. In the days before mass media, human beings had the opportunity to interact with one another personally and construct that reality. Now our, our mediated reality, well, in the 20th century, our mediated reality was constructed by the mass media. What, what we're seeing now and what really scares us is in the breakdown of this centralized control over information, different narratives appearing that seem quite alien to us and, and, and seem uh, and may be dangerous. Uh, but not every alternative narrative, narrative that to, to what's going on in the world is in fact dangerous. Some of them are more truthful than the dominant narrative we live in. Give me an example. Well, you mentioned the, uh, you mentioned uh, we just finished the midterms of 2022 and we're already looking forward to uh, the, the presidential race of 2024 and our news media will be filled for the next uh, two years with, uh, with uh, prognostication about who's going to run and we're going to treat it like a horse race and, 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 our, and we, we will focus on nothing more than that. And, and the whole Trump phenomenon 
will be repeated and repeated and repeated, and it will cause uh, fear and agitation uh, among Democrats. And by the way, they'll use that fear and demonstration to to drum up uh, uh, political donations amongst the followers. But at the me- in the meantime, we have really, really serious problems in this country that our mainstream media are, are not dealing with. with. Poverty and unemployment, homelessness, income inequality, uh, the failure of or loss of democratic principles in our country before Trump took office. We've got rampant pre- prescription drug abuse. Uh, the uh, trust, Americans' trust in the media which in the 1970s was, sat at about 72% and dropped in 1997 to 53%. Today it's about 36%, according to the Gallup poll. We've got continued, despite the fact that there's overwhelming uh, support in the United States for single-payer or uh, universal health care, we've got the continued privatization of health care. Our education system, our higher education, is being destroyed by this free market model of education. Uh, there's just there's so many problems that we have, but we're focused on the constantly change. We're, we're looking at the shiny object, mm-hmm. and, we can't, and we can't take our eyes off it. You talked about um, how you've seen, you just mentioned a, a free market model of education. When you, when you say that, are you talking about um, things like uh, I've seen in certain instances where faculty have been admonished or suspended or fired because they did something the students didn't like, and the students are the economic engine, so we have to make them happy. Is that what you're talking about, or are you talking about something different? Well, that's that's partly it. Again, it's, it's kind of a complex thing. Um, I've been following this for about, oh, it's got to be 30 years since my first teaching position. Um, you know, in the 1990s, there was real collegiality at, at schools that I, not only that I worked at, but that I could observe. Um, administrators came from the ranks of faculty. Um, uh, governance was shared amongst administration and faculty with, of course, the board of directors having ultimate fiduciary control and things like that. But we have adopted a, a, a set, and we, I'm saying academ, academia in general, uh, a set of policies that I've, I've called kind of free market model of education. Uh, we think of the student, as you're referring to right now, as, as consumers rather than students. We emphasize the competition uh, uh, between uh, different uh, institutions. Um, we, we have to constantly keep an eye on what, like what the next new trend is, usually in technology, and spend money on that. We lose sight of the basics of education. We lose sight of teaching critical thinking. Um, we build buildings for the sake of prestige. I just uh, I have a friend, a personal friend, who uh, lives in Michigan, um, I just learned about this on Facebook. He, he's lost his job along with uh, 10 other faculty members because their, their university was running a budget deficit because they can't pay for their new football stadium. Ugh. 
this is this is the kind of stuff I'm talking about. And I call it this the free. It's a it's a it's a you know no longer administrators they're managers, and it's a top down approach to managing faculty. Faculty become labor, um, and 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 looked at as an expense. Uh, so there's there's a, a greater uh, emphasis on on adjuncts, teaching courses that may not be there in a few years and teaching on technologies that today are cutting edge, but in a few years when students graduate, they might be pretty, pretty much obsolete. Um, and I don't want to s- spend my time with you on the show just talking about the problems of education because we've got, we've got plenty of problems to talk about. <laughs> well, on that note, let's take a break. I'm talking with Dr. Peter Fallon, who's a professor of journalism and media studies at Roosevelt University and has uh, written a new book, Propaganda 2.1, Understanding Propaganda in the Digital Age. We will get to all those problems right after this. Take Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, with you on the go by using the TuneIn app on your phone. Just search for WCPT 820. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm joined by Professor Peter Fallon. He's at Roosevelt University, and he has just written Propaganda 2.1, Understanding Propaganda in the Digital Age. We got kind of sidetracked on a tangent about what's going on in education and as Peter said right before we went to break, we have a lot more problems to talk about than that. So let's I use the time with, we have left to address the rest of the problems, Peter. I say that with no joy, Joan. Believe uh, I know. But and, and, you know, my my problem with those problems is one in their existence in the first place, but two in our lack of coverage of the problems. I think if, if our news media did a better job of emphasizing these things rather than the constantly changing ephemera of the mass-mediated constructed reality, we'd, we'd be angry, we'd be upset, and we'd be out in the streets trying to do things about it. I know that oh, yeah, from, I, from I, working I like in, in, and talking to people in the news biz, a part of that is a lot of the, you talked about cutbacks in education. There have been cutbacks in newsrooms. Um, and so you kind of have to focus on, you know, you know, just hitting like the highlights of the day because it takes time to dig into the kind of problems like, you know, um, people who lack housing. That's, that's not something, you know, that you make a couple of phone calls and you write 500 words on. Um, and I think a lot of that too is, uh, is are, are the inability to have the the resources to do those kinds of deep dives? How do you see that changing? I I I've, I have seen it change. I, I've been watching it. I, you know, I don't, you you didn't mention this, but I, I I worked for NBC News in the 1980s and 1990s, so 17 years for the Today Show, um, and it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't great in the 80s, but it was. We, I believe, we we took journalism more seriously in the '80s than we than we do today. Today, it's much more focused, and there's historical re- reasons for this. Uh, the um, uh, the revamping of 
the um, Communications Act of 1984, first new uh, uh, legislation on, on, on mass communications in 50 years. And at the time, um, the, the chair of the FCC, Ronald Reagan's chair, his name was Mark Fowler, uh, a man who said, and this is a very close para- paraphrase, that, that television doesn't need any more regulation than any other home appliance, because television is really nothing more than a toaster with pictures. You can look this up. But he changed the, you know, stations, broadcasters have to be licensed every two years uh, by the FCC. And they have to show evidence that they're uh, working in the public interest, convenience, and necessity. Convenience and necessity, those those are two things to demonstrate very easily. But public interest... Who decides what the public interest is? And Fowler said in a series of white papers, you know, in this kind of big government is the problem way, mm-hmm. who is the FCC to decide what's in the interest of the American people? He wanted to take it in a more free market way. He said, and this is very close to a quote, that what the people are interested in will define the public interest. <laughs> and so what you've got is like, what people will watch is the news, right? What people like to see becomes the news. It, it's no longer about what does, a, what does a, a, an American citizen need to know to be a good citizen. It's like what, what does the, an American consumer need? What do they want today? And so we've, there's been this shift towards softer news, uh, uh, towards um, scripted news. I don't know if you've seen any of these various videos that, that float around uh, on the Internet, like on YouTube and places like that. But they've, they've got these sequences of, of anchors and reporters like at stations all over the country saying exactly the same scripts. We've got scripted news now. It's, it's all, it's all, uh, it's all uh, focus-tested, and uh, there are, um, you, you know, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, people who do this research, uh, audience research, and find out what is the news story of the week. Uh, that's a problem. That's a problem. So, do you have a fix? Uh, I, I <laughs> or can you push us in the direction of a fix? Well, there's, uh, there's no antidote to this. <laughs> Especially if we, if we keep focusing on the dangers of newer digital alternative media. Yes, there's going to be dangers, and yes, some people will be fooled. Most fake news that I've encountered on the Internet is so obviously fake that only a a dodo could fall for it. And I know that there are dodos out there. Um, But the fact of the matter is is that something will come on, on your on your laptop screen or on your, on your phone that doesn't sound like it's the truth and we reject it. Rather than digging deeper and looking to see, oh, wait a second, this might be true. Um, and I think we need to do more of that. We need to be more discerning. And this is, there's no antidote, there's no quick fix, and it's not going to happen on a societal level. It, it has to happen on the level of each of us as individuals taking more responsibility for critical thinking and making judgments about stories. 
a story can be absolutely true that we see on a given day and have nothing to do with the life of our society. It's, just, it's, it's trivia. Uh, so truth and falsehood really is not the point here. By the way, one of the things that Alul uh, says in his book is that for systematic propaganda in the long term to be affected, effective, I'm sorry, it has to be based on facts. If it's based on falsehoods, it may be effective in the short term, but the truth always comes out. Huh. Go back to uh, go back to 2002, 2003, and the build up to the war in Iraq. Day after day after day, we were lied to. Yeah. About weapons of mass destruction, about links between Al Qaeda and Saddam. N- none of it was true, and eventually, w- we learned that. And and uh, George W. Bush's approval rating dropped from the 90s down to about 28 percent. So uh, could I extrapolate that? You know, we talk all the time about the big lie, you know, Trump pushing the big lie that he didn't lose the election. Are you saying that eventually, it, you know, because the, the thinking has always been, you know, you take a big lie, you just keep saying it over and over again, and then people start believing it. But are you saying that eventually at some point down the road, it will collapse because it is indeed a lie. You know, I, I, I think it will uh, uh, collapse just as inevitably as Trump's presidency collapsed. Um, but the, I, I don't have the specific statistics in front of me to say this, but very, very few people uh, buy into the whole um, story that the election was stolen. The ones that do, by the way, and I think it's important to, to point this out, the ones that do and say, oh, the Demo- you can't trust the Democrats, they'll fix the election, they're looking at the 2015-2016 primary, when the Democratic Party actually did do exactly that. <laughs> they fixed the primary in, in favor of uh, Hillary Clinton. So even though there's n- I don't believe for a second that there's any truth that the Democratic Party and local election officials all across the country uh, are colluded to fix the election. I think that's nonsense. But Hmm. you can't really blame people for being suspicious about the Democratic Party. What about the, uh, the Republican Party, people who should be suspicious of a lot of the especially the real far-right stuff coming out of the Republican Party, don't seem to be suspicious of it at all. It seems to be almost like religion, Peter. Uh, again, I, you know, I, I can't speak for the Republican Party. I can't speak for Republicans. Um, and I, I, I don't know how much of, of what we're seeing or, and hearing or not seeing and not hearing is conviction on the part of Republicans or just... <laughs> They don't know what, you know, they don't know what the politically correct thing to say is. They've, they've got to make a statement about it. They'd rather not. Um, um, it is, you know, it, I, I think it is important to point out, and I'm not a Republican, and I'm, I'm, I'm not a, 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 report, a, a supporter of uh, Republican politics in any way, shape, or form. Um, in fact, I, I, I think it's possible I may be far to the left of even WCPT's audience. <laughs> um, but 
the Republican primary, there's a wonderful documentary series on uh, Showtime right now. It's called, I'm giving them a plug. It's called The Circus, the greatest political show on earth. And, and the first season has to do with the entire um, Democratic and Republican primaries of 2015 and 2016. But the, the ironic thing is, <clears throat> the Republicans were scared out of their pants about a Trump presidency. And they talked about going to the convention and overturning the people's votes because Trump won the majority of delegates in those primaries. But they they didn't. And so in a way, in a way, the Republican primary in 2016 was more small D Democratic than the Democratic Party primary. <laughs> Huh. I I hadn't I think, thought about I it in those terms. Regret, we should all regret what happened. But I mean, if you're looking at it in terms of respecting democratic principles, the Republicans went out on a limb. They said, well, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> We're nominating this guy, this, this uh, reality show guy, but this is what the people want. You mentioned earlier in this conversation that people had to... Um, Basically, be more discerning in the information sources and facts, stories that they consume. Would that be your best piece of advice for people to stay uh, informed about the truth of whatever's happening as we approach the next election? Do we just need to put more effort into this? Can you give us any any tools that we should use? Um, yeah, I, I can I can talk to you about what I, what I believe needs to happen, but it's 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 not going to uh, unfortunately probably have an effect in in twenty twenty four or the twenty twenty six midterms or twenty twenty eight. It's this is a, this is a long term fix. Something that Americans hate, by the way. We want instant fix. <laughs> But, yeah. And again, I mean, I think education comes comes back into this. I know this is this is an old, trite phrase, and and some people even think it's like reactionary and hyper conservative. But we need to go back to basics in our education system. We have to we have to get students to be readers. We've got to get them to be habitual readers. We've got to get them to be deep readers. We've got to get them to be readers of broad and diverse types of literature. We've got to get them, we've got to get our students to know their history. We've got to get our students to know about American civics. This is what, in my opinion, and when I went into teaching after 17 years in television, this is what I believed, we're, we're there to make students better citizens. Um, that's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to happen overnight. When we're, when we're laying off uh, uh, senior faculty, 26 years of tenure, because we can't fil- build a football field. Yeah. I, uh, I agree. Peter, this has been terrific. I, I wish we had more time. Thank you so much for spending part of your afternoon with us. Uh, Peter Fallon is a professor at Roosevelt in media and journalism 
Uh, the new book is Propaganda 2.1, Understanding Propaganda in the Digital Age. Peter, thank you for sharing your time with us today. Thank you, Joan, for putting up with me. <laughs> My pleasure. We're going to take a break for news and be back with more right after this. You're the only voice of reason on the radio. You give me hope. Having listened to you every day. Thank you for your clear insight. Always felt a little bit smarter. I listen to you every single day. I keep coming back to this station, and thank you for what you do. On WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade, and if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. I'm WCPT 820. One of the stories that we have been following here is, as part of this world we seem to be a part of right now, that attacks gay people that attacks a woman's right to autonomy. Uh, There have also been, as we've talked about a lot, attacks on what we read, what we allow our children to read, and not just our own children, but what we think all children should and should not be allowed to read, censorship, book bans. We are revisiting that now with John Kraska, Executive Director at Every Library. And um, I don't think, John, I'm happy to welcome you to the show, but I'm not sure the situation has improved a lot. How are you today? Thanks for having Every Library back on the show. My colleague Peter says hello. Uh, and it hasn't <laughs> improved much since you talked with him uh, a few months ago. Um, the state of affairs out there is that the, the cadence of these book bans hasn't changed much after the midterms. Uh, the opportunity for the country to take a deep breath isn't being shared by libraries, uh, public libraries and school libraries in quite the same way. Did the midterms make any difference? It's, it will make a difference in some state legislatures. Um, the, the, the issues around um, legislative attacks on content, uh, legislative attacks on uh, access to content uh, will shift in a, in a couple of places. At least maybe it'll cool down a little bit as well. But uh, with divided government in Washington, we have um, bills right now that are being considered that are, as you said, anti-gay, anti-CRT, uh, anti-access in different ways. And on, on the, the Democrat side, there's uh, bills that are trying to support and resolutions that are trying to support the right to access. I mean, this is an ongoing discussion in our country but the midterms, um, as it were, haven't uh, nudged this the right direction. Well, I'm sorry to hear you say that. Um, are the same titles being uh, singled out? I know that yes. Gender Queer, I believe, wasn't Gender Queer the number one challenged book? Gender Queer is at the uh, certainly at the top of the list, and the, the interesting thing about these books and the, the the roster of books, the catalog of books, is fairly similar. It's fairly consistent because the books that are being challenged generally are not coming from parents who have their own concerns. It's coming from special interest and activist groups that are trying to mm-hmm. advance this censorship agenda. So we're seeing around the country in public libraries and in schools. Uh, a cut-and-paste job happening where an organization like Moms for Liberty or some Parents United group somewhere that says that they're standing up for, for children and attempting at the same time to limit access are saying these are the bad books. Here's the bad book list 
um, why don't you go after them in your local in your local school, your local public library? So the list hasn't changed very much because it's not originating from legitimate parental concerns. It's legitimate. It's it's originating from a special interest group. And that's one of the phenomenons that I think I found most scary. You know where we saw outside actors, outside agitators, like show up at school board meetings, screaming and ranting about things. And everybody's looking at everybody else and saying, you know, they're not a parent here. What's this person doing? I mean, it does. It, again, it seems to be this reflection of a of a hardcore activist minority trying to impose their will on the majority. Because correct me if I'm wrong, but don't you find that most Americans don't want book bans? They don't want censorship? Uh, we did a poll back in September here at the Every Library Institute uh, asking American voters, uh, what is your opinion about book bans in school libraries and public libraries? Only 8% of voters on that national survey came back and said it's a, uh, that books that are inappropriate should be banned. Uh, 8% is a, is a small number of folks who are hardcore into book banning and censorship. And that term inappropriate is something that they have been trying to define for everybody else. It, uh, is, it, is it that most people tend to, be, I don't want to say be apathetic, but, you know, it's it's hard sometimes to get people to, oh, you know, after dinner tonight, don't just sit back and watch television. Get out and attend that school board meeting. You know, um, is the majority waking up to this problem and taking action that you see? So we also know from our polling back in September that uh, about 92 percent, 91 percent of voters are paying attention to the issue. They've heard about it. Uh, some of them heard, have heard a great deal. Some of them have heard something about it. So it's it's out there. It's in the conversation. Shows like yours are, are making it better known. But there's a softness to the protection that people have for the right to read, for, for the rights of, of uh, people to have their stories represented in these books. Um, only about 50% of American voters believe that there's absolutely no time when a book should be banned. Um, and within that 50% saying never, it's, there's even some, some concern because the issues that are being addressed in these books are very powerful. It's books about our identity. It's about who we are, who do we want to be. Uh, it's books that uh, tell true stories about, about people so that you can have that reflected in your own life. You can consider it. Books are, books are in a lot of ways, psychoactive. Um, there's 40 percent of American voters who say that, well, maybe in rare times it's a, it, it would be a, a, okay to ban a book. And that tends to get stronger. That rare time gets to get, becomes less rare as you start talking about books about race. Or hmm. it becomes even, even more uh, likely to ban a book when you talk about sex and sexuality, especially the GLBTQ experience. And we've, you know, Peter and I have talked about this, too, that I don't know whether it is just a small minority trying to impose their religious beliefs on the larger majority, or if there really are parents out there who believe that kids become gay by reading a book about it. I find that hard to believe with all the scientific knowledge that's out there now. But I, I, I still wonder if, um, you know, 
people people think that re, you know I, I was talking to a gay Illinois state legislature and he said to me he said you know Joan when I was growing up I read a lot of books where the protagonists were straight and it didn't make me straight so <laughs> which I I had I had never turned it around like that before um, and I I thought he made an, an excellent point. This on the Daily Show back in the John Stewart days when. He uh, had an interviewer out there, I don't remember which one it was, asking politicians, well, when did you decide to become straight? And, and the blank look on their face, the flabbergasted look on their face. Um, the, the organizations that are advancing these book bans, uh, those folks out there who have sincere and legitimate uh, concerns about content, I respect that. But one of the core tenets of the First Amendment is the right to petition your government. And libraries and, and schools are part of government. We should ask these questions about what the content is, is about and why do we have it. But the majority of the attacks are coming from organizations that seem to be either fundamentally anti-LGBT, mm-hmm. anti-black and brown, anti-education and anti-union. And some of them, quite honestly, are terrifyingly close to Christian nationalism, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, I do know that in the midterms we saw, was it two libraries defunded? Talk about that. Yes. So in local elections, they're lined up with the midterms. So top of the ticket in Michigan was, was uh, the governor's race, as was in, in uh, Arkansas. Uh, those were both top of the ticket, but way down at the bottom of the ballot um, in Michigan, it was the Patmos Library. Um, and in Arkansas, it was the Craighead County Jonesboro Library. In Michigan, this was the second time they were on the ballot to renew their basic funding levy. In Illinois, you got for a referendum. In Michigan, you got for a levy or millage. And it's how you fund the library with a progressive tax policy because it's trying to fund the common good. A group of, um, of book banners and censors in, the, in and around the Patmos Library, which is just outside of Grand Rapids, uh, had been unsuccessful in their attempts to ban these books. So instead of, uh, of saying, okay, we had a process, uh, it, was, it was looked at, the books are uh, not inappropriate, they're, they're, they're worth keeping in the library, they went after the library's funding. And they went after the library's funding in some very ugly ways. The campaign was vote no against the library and get rid of the groomers and the pedophiles. Oh, I mean, God. What, what, a, what a horrible rhetorical environment that was mirrored in uh, Jonesboro, Arkansas, at the Craig Kidd County Library there, too, where a small group of anti-book, I'm sorry, anti-access censorship book banners, again, they, had a, they, they weren't getting their way when it came to what was on the shelves, but they placed a measure on the ballot through a petition. They got 100 signatures uh, just around how, or sorry, just before, after uh, Labor Day, and they placed a measure on the ballot to defund the library by 50%. Now, both of these... One of them lost and one of them won, but both of them end up defunding the library. This is not the only thing that's out there. There was one up in uh, Alaska back in October on their local elections that luckily, not well, I mean, they worked really hard up there to, to keep the library safe and secure. That one, that library is okay. There's another one coming, I know, already in Iowa at the Pella Library next year. It's The petition's already been filed. Joan, if they can't get their way, they want to burn the place down. Literally, literally, that's what they're doing. Yeah. <sighs> we have seen situations where, um, you know, the right to petition, like I was saying before, about this is why we can come and have a book ban. It's a hard thing. It's a hard thing to, to, to want to come and say, let's consider the, the books. It's a, it's a difficult thing for a citizen to come and assemble 
you know, we're going to come and attend the, the, the board meeting for the library or for the school board. We're going to come together and we're going to pay attention to government. But these folks are, are coming together uh, not to participate in the democratic process. They're, they're not there to deliberate. They're not there to discuss. They're there to try and shut things down, grind it to a halt, and have their way put forward um, in their worldview. Um, the, it is a pernicious uh, aspect. Uh, yeah, the First Amendment's in conflict right now with itself. Oh, I'm speaking with uh, John uh, Shakstra, uh, the executive director at Every Library. We're going to continue this discussion about the attack on our books and our libraries right after this. Can't listen to Joan Esposito? Surely you can't be serious. Live, local, and progressive in your car today? I am serious, and don't call me sure. Don't fret. You can still listen to her on the TuneIn app on both your phone and computer. Whoa! You feel that right away. You're listening to WCPT 820, because facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. John Kraska is the executive director at an organization called Every Library. John, tell us about Every Library, who you are and what you do. We're a political action committee for libraries. Technically, uh, those of your, your listeners who are pretty well informed about politics would know that we're a 501c4 organization. So technically, we're a super PAC for libraries, John. Uh, we're uh, you're trying to advance our nefarious special interests, which is libraries and, and librarianship. Um, we are nonpartisan, but we are very pro-library. Uh, we work on local library elections. We help support the conversation about funding school libraries. We support our state uh, library association partners with their legislative agendas. Um, and we also try and talk to the American public um, across our different campaigns uh, for you know good ideas in libraries, as well as these crises that libraries are facing we have about uh, 400,000 people in our social networks and around 200,000, 225,000 people who are part of our, our activist network for libraries. Um, we've been at it for about 10 years now. In fact, uh, yesterday was our 10th anniversary. So it's oh. a nice little moment for me to be able to talk to you today, especially this week. Happy anniversary. Thank you. Yeah, our work has been focused on uh, funding for libraries up until about a year ago when we got involved in these highly politicized and very performative book bans. So over the years, it's been, I mean, we're, we're trying to help libraries get the right kind of funding they need to serve their communities and to make sure that librarians are there in, in schools, K-12 especially. It seems like um, the job has gotten a lot bigger, John, in the last 10 years. Um, I would imagine that, you know, 10 years ago, the thought of, having to spend so much time and, and energy and, and, and your passion on explaining why libraries shouldn't be defunded and books shouldn't be censored or banned. I mean, are we coming out? Is there a light at the end of the tunnel, John? Or do you think this is going to get worse before it gets better? I think that we, we have a, uh, a, a bit of a, a reckoning happening between our worldviews right now. Um, libraries used to be seen by progressives, by conservatives, and even by libertarians as the one part of society that we could get behind. Um, progressives look at it from the perspective of how do we help our neighbors? You know, the hand up instead of the hand out. Um, libertarians even look at it as like the smallest amount of smart tax money you can use. 
and you know, plenty of interesting coalitions between progressives and libertarians on moving these funding issues forward because you know, libertarians are like, can we have some transparency? And the librarians are, 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 are the most transparent of all parts of government. The conservative conversation knows what's getting, what's gotten uh, hijacked by these, these book banners and these censors. Conservatives should love libraries. In fact, they do in, in red states and red counties and red towns all around the country. I'm not suggesting that that love isn't there, but the, the conservative wants to preserve some part of Western society. And the conservative is worried about, well, you know, there, the way you bait the conservative is you say that the barbarians are at the gate, which is one of these reasons that the book banners and the censors have been successful in some places, because they're using vocabulary that's criminalizing librarianship when there's nothing criminal, there's nothing statutorily illegal, there's nothing even pornographic or obscene that's being given out to these kids. And yet that's the label that they're using. I think we have to have a reckoning here about what a true conservative believes about how libraries and how access and how support for individuals and communities should be done. <clears throat> it would seem to, excuse me, <clears throat> it would seem to me that this would be something that almost everybody could get behind. The communities that defunded the libraries, I'm confused how that happens. Even if you are a rigid, far-right, QAnon-loving, wackadoodle, I mean, you certainly would want some access to free books. Free books are good. Free books are good in my world, John. And you're saying that in, in these communities, I understand that maybe the radicals were like, okay, you won't ban all the books I want you to ban. We'll defund the library. But how did they convince the community to go along with that? I mean, I can't believe that a sign that said that librarians are groomers and pedophiles. I mean, well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that sign um, scared a lot of people or convinced a lot of people. How did they get the bulk of us who love libraries and love books to go along with their crazy ways? They changed any, any uh, person's heart. Uh, they made it so, so ugly that good people wanted to sit it out. Um, but they also took advantage of the fact that once you start talking about sex and sexuality or about race uh, in this country, the support starts to creep up for, for making things less available. Nobody who's in the mainstream is going to say, I'm a censor. Nobody's going to say, I'm a book banner. But there's plenty of people who have a soft censorship. They, they want to see these things disappear so that they don't have to be confronted with the history of, of racial animosity in this country, the problems between the classes, the way we treat women, uh, the way that we, we behave, that we abrogate the rights of the LGBT community all the time. These are, these are, they make it as ugly as possible so that good people will sit this thing out and hope somebody else figures it out. Um, I'm in a position here with our political action committee um, for libraries to try and put a good light on what librarians do, but also to tell the truth to our communities about what access really means, what um, uh, the opportunity to have your own stories reflected in the collections, what the, the, the whole cloth of the First Amendment is, absolutely, when it comes to free speech. But I'm talking about the 14th Amendment as well equal protection under the law, civil rights, and human rights. And those 
those shouldn't be a wedge issue. But you, your listeners here at AM 820 know that, that it's been weaponized against so many different sectors mm-hmm. of civil discourse. And people forget libraries are more than just books and magazines. In many places, libraries are community centers that serve the library near my house. Oh, my God. I mean, you can learn how to do crafts there. I've taken Mm -hmm. cooking classes there. I've learned how to use uh, various aspects of computer technology there. Um, I mean, some, talk about some of the things that you've seen that benefit a community that take place at a library. Well, that you're providing here are fantastic. Uh, the the opportunity to come together to learn a new skill, to do something as fun as as uh, crafting with, or I mean, the knitting circles, uh, the chance to borrow uh, things that you don't want to buy. I mean, there's a there's a really idealistic aspect to that. I mean. The, the the Thanksgiving holidays just in our rearview mirror here, and I really could have used a sheet pan, and guess what I could do? I could go to my local library and get the one I needed because we're collecting things, as you said, more than just books and magazines. Um, the access that libraries provide to materials, to resources, to technology, to hardware, and to, to the software of our culture through, through books and, and, and uh, magazines is, I, I think, something that cuts across party lines and partisan politics. At least it should. Um, the the technology classes that are going on, uh, the chance to help somebody navigate the Internet. I mean, if we get high-speed Internet everywhere, you still have to learn how to use it. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't want to buy all the software myself if I only need to use it like Adobe Acrobat for a few minutes or Adobe Illustrator for a few minutes. Let's collectively put our budget to work for the common good. That's what libraries, back in the progressive era, certainly, uh, but all the way back to the founding, we're about. Thank you so much, John, for spending time reminding us about what is going on. I mean, would you say it is an exaggeration to almost call it a war on libraries or war on librarians, a war on books? The culture war uh, has certainly come to our public libraries and and our school libraries. Um, And I think that uh, the metaphor it's, it's a difficult one to, to acknowledge as being in place, but there's a different worldview uh, that is being espoused by, by these folks who are looking to book, ban books and censor books. Uh, they're, they're looking to diminish the dignity of a lot of different people, um, and I think that we have to defend those, that dignity, um, as well as the institutions that, that support uh, everyone without fear or favor. I, I I'm hesitant to say you know, it's it's a war on libraries, but I think that there's a new front in the culture war for sure. Well, I'm glad that you and Peter and others like every library are out there trying to hold the high ground. Uh, John uh, Kraska is the executive director at every library. It is a subject that we are going to be going back to over and over again and uh, each time I'm hoping that things are getting a little bit better. Uh, but we'll continue to keep an eye on this. John, thank you for being here. Thank you very much for sharing this with your, your listeners. We are going to take a break. We'll be back with more right after this. Listen to the Tom Hartman Radio Program every weekday from 11 to 2 right here on WCPT 820, where facts matter. You know what time it is? Hello? Can you hear me? It's time 
to return to the best progressive talk show in Chicago. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, now on WCPT 820. We are back. And uh, as I mentioned at the top of the show today, the Supreme Court, no, no, this isn't the case I was talking to you about the other day. The woman from Littleton, Colorado, who uh, designs websites but doesn't want to design them for uh, gay couples who are getting married, just heterosexual couples who are getting married. And the questioning that took place as this case was presented to the Supreme Court seemed to indicate, if we could read the tea leaves, that especially Justice Alito, that they would like to find a way to make it okay for her to do this, even though it's a public business, and yes, public businesses are supposed to serve the public. They would like to find a way uh, to use somehow freedom of speech to give her an exception. But I think after they saw the chaos that ensued after they struck down Roe v. Wade, They are trying to figure out a way to make it a narrow decision that doesn't apply to all businesses everywhere. Yes, we talked about that case in this Supreme Court, which just is. Um, But there's a new case. This is the one that we mentioned earlier today where they're looking at a case that um, will. Well, the argument is that states should decide who wins an election. Um, and there shouldn't be any court challenges allowed. So, you know, if um, George's secretary of state decides that he likes Herschel Walker better than Raphael Warnock, then he can just throw out the votes and declare that and there won't be any appeal possible at any court in the land. Yes, you would think, well, this far right court is going to be embracing all these ideas. There was a little bit of hope reported in The Washington Post that said when the questioning took place, the justices seemed skeptical, which is which these days that those are the breadcrumbs that we pray for falling from the Supreme Court table. We have lots of questions and some of our callers earlier kind of wanted to know what would the mechanics be of Supreme Court reform. So we have invited uh, Professor Carolyn Shapiro to rejoin us. She's a professor of law. At Chicago Kent College of Law, she is also the co-director of the Institute there on the Supreme Court of the United States. Carolyn, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So before I get in, we I had callers earlier today that had a bunch of questions that I need to ask you. But before we get to those calls, uh, the case that the Supreme Court just heard arguments on, this thing that uh, the the states don't need anybody's approval to decide who wins an election. What is your sense of the case, and what is your sense of the court? So the the issue in the case is whether state constitutions and state courts can impose their ordinary checks and balances on state legislatures when state legislatures are regulating federal elections. And you know that's kind of a mouthful. But the the federal constitution says that state legislatures regulate federal elections, and at least that's the default. Congress can step in if it wants and has to some degree. Um, But nobody has ever said before, uh, or no court has ever held before, no federal court, that that means that because legislatures have that power, the ordinary checks and balances that legislatures 
usually have don't apply. That's what this case is about. And it's it's scary because it opens the door to, say, gerrymandered legislatures uh, doing things with respect to federal elections that would be unconstitutional in their states with respect to state elections. And that's really what's at issue in this case. It involves redistricting. North Carolina, very heavily gerrymandered GOP legislature, drew very gerrymandered congressional maps, and the North Carolina Supreme Court said, no, they violate the North Carolina Constitution. Um, And the legislature, the legislators who have brought this case all the way to the Supreme Court say, no, the North Carolina Supreme Court doesn't have the power to do that because the North Carolina Constitution just doesn't apply. What is your sense? You know, I was reading these articles and You know, people try to read the tea leaves. You know, how did they sit? What was their body language? You know, (laughs) were they angry when they asked a question, trying to get some sense of of where at least certain members of the court stand on a certain issue before them? I'm sure you've looked at some of the same reporting I have. Do you have any sense of whether or not the tea leaves are giving us any um, any predictions here? Yeah, I, I mean, it's always a little risky to uh, to make a, a, a prediction based on oral argument. But my sense was that the just the, the there's two or three justices who are all in on this theory, but that most of them are pretty uneasy about it. That the most extreme version of the theory just was was really not getting purchase uh, with with the justices who it would need to to adopt it, which is a good thing. They spent most of their time, I don't know, most of their time, an enormous amount of their time trying to get the, the, the advocates to talk about when would federal court review be appropriate? Because all of the advocates, everybody agrees that when it, normally when a state uh, Supreme Court interprets or applies its own state constitution, that's not normally a question that federal courts review. But there are some circumstances where it might be appropriate, and that's really what they were spending an enormous amount of time on. And I took that as a positive sign because that it means they are interested in preserving that possibility when it's necessary, uh, which should be very rare. And but that which but that they were not buying the the, the wholesale uh, rejection of state court involvement in, in these kinds of questions. How let's back up a step. I mean, the Supreme Court is asked to hear a lot of cases. They pick and choose. Clearly, there must have been some interest in this case for them to decide to hear it. So you think that there's possibly at least a small number of justices who think this whole thing with the states is a fine idea? Well, it came up during 2020 and during 2020, I'm sure a lot of your listeners will recall, among other things that were at issue was the Pennsylvania Supreme Court required the state voting election officials to accept absentee ballots up to three days after Election Day. And the statute said they were due on Election Day. And the reason the state Supreme Court said that is it said that under the state constitution, that it, because of the combination of factors involving the pandemic and the problems with the post office, it would violate the state guarantees about voting to cut off 
the, the uh, just for this election, not for all elections, just for this election, that that election day deadline was going to operate unconstitutionally. So it extended the deadline by three days. That was the context in which was one of the contexts, but it's the one that got the most attention in which the issue went to the U.S. Supreme Court. And three justices said in, in written opinions at various points along the way that they thought what the Pennsylvania Supreme Court did was rewriting the election rules and that that that, that was that violated the elections clause because the legislature is supposed to write the rules. When this case out of North Carolina popped up, three just the same three justices said that they thought actually the Supreme Court should issue a stay to prevent the North Carolina Supreme Court's judgment even from going into effect. And Justice Kavanaugh, who during 2020 had been kind of flirting with this theory, said he wasn't sure. He wasn't voting for the stay. He was saying it's an important question and we should probably decide it. And I have to say, I agree with that. The the question is out there. It has to be resolved. And it better be resolved when we're not in the middle of an election than that it be resolved when it's going to determine who wins uh, who wins an election. So I'm, I'm not surprised that they took it. And uh, it only takes four votes to take it. So you have the three justices who are all in, and then you have Justice Kavanaugh. I'm not surprised that they took it. And quite frankly, I think it's a good thing. Okay. All right. We have a caller. Uh, Jim is calling in from Chicago to join our conversation. Hey, Jim, you're on with me and Professor Carolyn Shapiro. Hi, Professor. Hey, Joan. I'm with you, Joan. How many harebrained cases are we going to live with? These people are 40 and 50 years old. They obviously have a motive to do away with elections altogether. They'd like to just rule from the Supreme Court. How many of these cases, what is the criteria for these cases? They must have some ulterior motive that they don't want to count the votes in America. And I'm with you, Joan. I'm up there, and I, I don't know how long I'm going to last, but... These people are 50, 40, 50 years old. Are they going to continue to take these unique cases to drive the electric in whatever direction they want to? I mean, is this what we have to live with? That's all I had to ask the Professor Joan. And with you, I mean, you've asked this question before. But anyway, thanks for taking my call. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Jim. And uh, Carolyn, Jim's question leads into a lot of the questions that I got earlier today about the way the court functions and court reform. Let's I don't want to interrupt you once we get into this. So let's take a break right now. Professor Carolyn Shapiro is an expert on the Supreme Court. We are going to be talking about um, how you would uh, add justices, you know, how you could impose a code of ethics. We're talking about how to work with the crazy Supreme Court we've got. We'll be back with more after this. Take Joan Esposito live, local, and progressive with you on the go by using the TuneIn app on your phone. Just search for WCPT 820. Don't turn that dial. A dangerous mistake to make. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. I am joined by Chicago Kent College of Law professor Carolyn Shapiro who is an expert on the Supreme Court. In fact, earlier in her career, she clerked for a Supreme Court justice, Justice Stephen Breyer. We got a lot of calls earlier today when we were first talking about this, Carolyn, about um, making changes to the Supreme Court. Now, I'm a little confused. I've spoken with you before about this, 
And I was under the impression that only the members of the Supreme Court could come up with and impose upon themselves a code of ethics, that it had to come from them and be accepted by them. But I've had lots of um, other uh, political experts in the last couple of weeks say that, you know, Congress has to get going, that Congress can impose a code of ethics on them, which is correct. Well, we won't know for sure till Congress tries, but I think Congress can do it. Congress has passed codes of ethics that relate to other courts, other federal courts, and in fact, there are even some laws that reach the Supreme Court. So I don't think that it's at all clear that the Congress can't, and my vote would be that Congress can. Now, would that be the kind of thing where it would be like a regular bill, where it has to be passed by both houses and signed by the president? It would just be a regular law. Okay. Now, the other question I was getting earlier today was, as Jim pointed out, you know, Donald Trump didn't just fill several seats. He filled several seats with people who were significantly younger than we have in the past put on the Supreme Court which means, you know, you get a 40-year-old on the court and you could be living with their decisions for four decades. Um, So the question becomes, you know, if they continue to be so out of step with the majority of the American public in their decisions, taking away rights or imposing restrictions that people just decide that they just can't stomach, what would it take to expand the Supreme Court and dilute the hard right voices on it now? What would be the steps? To expand the number of seats on the Supreme Court would also be a regular law. Congress is in charge of the number of seats. The only thing that the Constitution says for sure is that there has to be a chief justice. The rest of it's up to Congress. And over the history of the United States, there's been different numbers of justices on the court. We've had as few as six. So uh, there's nothing to the Congress could pass a law tomorrow uh, that would that would expand the number of seats on the court. So, I mean, there are arguments whether it's a good idea or not, but that's constitutionally it's not a problem. So it doesn't require any kind of constitutional amendment. The, the states don't vote on this. It would just be somebody what writing up a bill like Nancy Pelosi putting out House Bill 479. Let's add two seats to the court. Well, yes. And then it has to pass both houses and be signed by the president. It wouldn't be a wouldn't just happen overnight. It wouldn't be, you know, it would obviously be very controversial. But yes, that's as a constitutional matter. That's what it takes. And when this vote came to the Senate, would this vote be subject to the filibuster? Under current Senate rules, yes. So even if President Biden thought it was a fine idea, and even if he still had control of the House of Representatives, the the idea presumably would die in the Senate without 60 votes. I mean, like all legislation, it, it would run up against that that problem. So it would it, it is not would not be a simple thing to do. Uh, It may not be politically possible to do, but it is constitutionally possible. So a president would either need um, a supermajority in the Senate and a majority in the House, 
or they would need maybe. Can you envision a time when there is such a groundswell of dissatisfaction with the court that it would be politically viable for a Republican to support this? Yeah, I mean, if I could if if th- there would have to be provisions in a law like this that would phase in the new justices so that whoever was in the White House at the time that the law passes and initially goes into effect doesn't themselves immediately get to a point, get to a point, say, for new justices. There would have to be some some reason for both parties to think that they might be able to get some of their own justices appointed through this process. So, you know, I, I don't, and there've been other court reform ideas that have been floated that revolve around the idea that the thing that's most likely to work is a reform that both sides can live with. The problem, one of the criticisms of adding seats is that then it's, we're in a, an arms race and every time either party has t- control of Congress in the white house, they start adding more seats. So a, 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 a better solution would be one that we don't know for sure in the short run or the long run, which party will, will benefit. That would be a more stable solution. Let me put it that way. But I agree yeah. with you that this court is not representative of where the American people are. And we know that not just because of their opinions, but we also know that because out of, we have a country that the last since two, since 1988, Republicans have won the popular vote in presidential elections exactly once, and nonetheless, six of the six of the appointees on the court are Republican appointees, and the three most recent ones were confirmed by by very narrow votes in the Senate by senators who collectively represent millions fewer Americans than the senators who voted against them. That's all constitutional. I'm not saying it's illegitimate in that way, but it's problematic. And it, it is what going to lead to increasing dissatisfaction by the American people. Do they care? I think they do care. I think different ones care in just different ways and a different amount. But I think that they care certainly about the court retaining just the chief justice, for example, cares a lot about the court retaining its stature. People talk a lot about its legitimacy and the desire by the chief justice and others to retain the court's legitimacy. And some of that has to do with it interpreting the constitution in ways that are not antithetical to what large majorities of the country believe. We have another caller, uh, Carolyn, uh, Dave from Hoffman Estates. Hey, Dave, you're on with me and uh, Supreme Court expert law professor Carolyn Shapiro. Go ahead. Oh, very good. Yeah, you're talking on uh, judges. I just picked up, read a story today where, as of today's date, this is the U.S. State Senate has state United States Senate has confirmed 93 Article Three judges nominated by Biden. One associate justice to the Supreme Court, 26 judges for the U.S. Courts of Appeal, and 66 judges for the U.S. District Courts. Yeah, they've been nom- Biden has been moving much more quickly on uh, nominating judges than President Obama did, uh, which is a good thing. He was very slow, and uh, the Senate has been moving sort of quickly 
to not to confirm them. Their their pace is okay. It could be a lot better. So right, uh, it would be it would be good for them to move more quickly and for the, their their parts of the country, in particular states where there are two Republican judges, where the the um where, where there haven't been nominations made by the White House, and they, that's that's a problem. Yeah, and if I recall right in the story, they were saying that the, a goodly portion of our, our of uh, minorities, too, a lot of them are minority judges. Yes, he's been he's been nominating a, a, a really remarkably diverse group of people to the bench, and not just people who are minorities and women, but also people with a more diverse diverse professional background, civil rights lawyers, public defenders, and that's a great thing. It is. To have people on the bench who didn't, whose entire professional life has not been being a prosecutor or representing big corporations, yes, that's a good thing. We want more. We want more perspectives on the bench. Thank you, Dave. Thank you for the call, uh, Carolyn. Term limits. If if it was agreed that maybe that would be a court reform that people could swallow, would there be any way to impose term limits? and make them retroactive to the current members? The only way to make them retroactive would require would be a constitutional amendment. And that whether a constitutional amendment is required at all to impose term limits pr- prospectively, uh, there's disagreement about, there's some creative ideas that might, might allow it to happen, but certainly to apply to the current members, it would require a constitutional amendment. I think that... Obviously, constitutional amendments are very challenging. They're very hard to 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 get to to win. The, but term limits is an idea that has a lot of appeal, by, a lot of cross ideological appeal, a lot of bipartisan appeal. And I think if it started to look like what would happen otherwise is, is expanding the court, that seems to me to be the point where there really might be a move. For that, for the kind of amendment that would be necessary to impose term limits, it would, it, there would be some real incentives on both sides to see that happen. Lastly, what was it like to uh, clerk for Judge Breyer? Uh, it was the most phenomenal experience. Um, he was very early in his tenure, and of course, he just stepped down. Um, but it was his third term on the bench, so I got to watch him as he tried to figure out how he wanted to be a justice, what it was going to be like to be a justice. And he's the kind of person who thinks by talking out loud. So uh, he, he and I and my co-clerks were, we had front row seats to that. Um, and, and it was, it was just a phenomenal privilege. Um, it was an incredibly hard job. It was an incredibly stressful job. It was an incredibly interesting job. Um, and one I will always be grateful to have had. Oh, so cool. Thank you so much for joining us. It's always good uh, when you come here and straighten us out about what the is and is not possible when it comes to the Supreme Court and what, if anything, we think they're going to do. Carolyn, thank you. I really appreciate you taking the time to share your knowledge with us. We are going to take a break for news. We're going to be back with the lovely and talented Chris Beery after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT 820. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. 
We are joined periodically by Chris Beery. You know him uh, from his days as a network newsman. He is now the DePaul University journalist in residence. Uh, Chris, how are you? I'm well, Joan, and uh, good to be with you in this never-ending election season. (laughs) I know. Uh, First of all, the important stuff. Did you have a nice uh, Thanksgiving holiday? Yeah, we, we, we did. And then uh, we took a little vacation uh, to, of all places, uh, Georgia last oh. week, uh, where we're oh. soaking up uh, a lot of the, uh, the race. Uh, we saw a lot of run, Herschel run uh, signs, as well as Warnock signs. And I guess um, Herschel did try to run, but he ran right out of gas. And um, that's where things ended last night. Wow. Uh, when you like went places, like if you went to stores or or to restaurants, were people talking about the election? And if so, what did you overhear? We heard a, a little bit of it. Um, we were mainly in Savannah, which is sort of a blue um, island. It's where Warnock uh, is originally from, probably a, a bit more cosmopolitan than much of Georgia. But then we um, headed south uh, along the coast and saw a lot of uh, walker signs. So it was sort of interesting, the more rural uh, southern parts of Georgia. Uh, obviously, Walker did did better in Warnock, wherever there were college towns and cities and, and suburbs. One of the fascinating things I heard was actually a, um, a focus group of Republicans, um, and Politico, I believe, is the one that um, conducted it, and it just amazed me to hear a you know sort of articulate, obviously educated Georgia Republicans uh, rationalizing their support for Herschel Walker, um, who they knew perfectly well was a terrible candidate, um, obviously a, a liar, someone who didn't uh, take care of his children, who was accused of paying for abortions and yet uh, campaigning against abortion. But the rationalizations uh, from the, these Republicans were basically all based on power and partisanship, that they wanted that number um, in the Senate and they didn't like uh-huh. Biden. And that was reason enough to vote for Herschel Walker. Um, and it was a, it was a, it was a it was an interesting victory. Um, still, I mean, 1.7 million people uh, were able to vote for, you know, one of the worst U.S. Senate candidates I've ever seen. I think without question, he's the worst candidate for any office I've ever uh, known in my entire life. And I don't understand how I, I mean, I understand we have two parties. I understand that there can be some pretty harsh divisions. But I don't know, Chris, if the, you know, I'm a Democrat, I'm a liberal. If the Democrats decided, well, you know, that Herschel Walker guy, he did pretty well. You know, let's let's run him in a as a Democrat in a race coming up. If I were voting in that race, I don't care about party loyalty. I could not bring myself to vote for a man who is so very flawed. I don't understand that mindset. Anything's better than a Democrat. Yeah, it, it, it's it's very strange. Um, these things, once upon a time in our political life, 
were absolutely disqualifying. I mean, Gary Hart, you know, in the monkey business with Donna Rice on his lap, one photo in the Miami Herald, and he was done as a candidate. And here we have a man who didn't even acknowledge his own children until the press found out about it, didn't acknowledge uh, and still never did paying for abortion and, and beyond all those obvious character flaws, his performance as a candidate were just embarrassing. One could not look at any of those speeches or Q and A's or any time he opened his mouth. Um, he just had no grasp of issues. He repeated these sort of tired talking you know, points about gas prices, and that's all he could muster. He, he, he was truly an embarrassment. And I think, uh, you know, a lot of Republicans, you know, realize that. You know, uh, I was talking to Greg Pallast, who I know you're aware of. He's uh, for those of you listening who've never heard the name. He does some reporting for the BBC and other outlets, and he really has made it sort of his life's mission and his organization's mission to look at voter suppression and ways in which people are deterred from or prevented from voting. And he did a big documentary on what was going on in Georgia called Vigilante about all the ways that um, especially African-American voters were thrown off the rolls and just... Um, tried to make voting as difficult as possible. I was talking to him Monday, and he said he was very worried. He was very worried about the race and whether or not Warnock would win because of all of the different maneuvers that the remaining still-in-power white power structure in Georgia, all the things that they had put in place, taking away the drop boxes, reducing hours. You know, I mean, we saw the lines, people trying to vote in some areas of Georgia, standing in lines that stretched as far as the eye could see. But he said if you were uh, voting in a white area, particularly um, a white rural area, 10 minutes was all that you had to wait to get in line. And he was terrified that even with Herschel Walker being quite possibly the single worst candidate who's ever run for office, that he might win simply because of the way the system had been rigged. What do you think about that? No question about it. Um, And I think that the, you know, the proof in the pudding was when the state Republican Party um, tried to shut down voting on the Saturday after Thanksgiving. Um, based on a very strange reading of an obscure law, and the Democrats went to court um, and uh, survived the appeal. And that Saturday voting, where a lot of people who couldn't get you know off from work uh, during the week, uh, that that was critical. There, there mm-hmm. was just record-setting voting on on that day. So, yeah, the suppression is is amazing. We're so lucky um, here in the Chicago area. Um, that our our early voting extends for uh, weeks, that we have 50 early voting sites in the city of Chicago, and then I think at least another 50 additional ones in suburban Cook County. And voting here is a snap, and we're so fortunate because in many other states, and not just southern states, but states like Wisconsin, uh, it's become very difficult, and drop boxes have become illegal, and you can be you know, persecuted for uh, bringing somebody a bottle of water in a voting line. So we're, we're, we're absolutely fortunate, and it's sad. And it shows also uh, the resilience of the, the Warnock supporters who were not going to let that stop them. 
We need to take a break. I am speaking with Chris Bury, DePaul journalist in residence. We are talking about the news of the day. If you would like to join our conversation, give us a call, 773-763-9278-773-763-9278. Chris Bury and I will be back with more after this. Facebook. Message us. Instagram. Follow us. Twitter. Tweet us. They keep me connected. Let's get social on the socials. WCPT 820. Because facts matter. You're listening to WCPT 820. This is Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I am joined by DePaul journalist-in-residence Chris Bury. We have been talking about the election in Georgia where Raphael Warnock squeaked. I mean, I think we can call this a squeaker where he squeaked out. And this terrifies me, Chris, because to me, when you've got a candidate as bad as Herschel Walker and, you know, it's not like the control of the Senate hung in the balance I believed that there were going to be a lot of Republicans that just sat it out because, you know, the Democrats already have uh, 50 seats in the Senate. So this one wasn't quite as important. I was really disturbed by how close it was. And I have not independently confirmed this. I get the Wall Street Journal. But as we've discussed before, I don't usually read the editorial pages because they they make me insane. But um, one of my callers the other day said that the Wall Street Journal had endorsed Brian Kemp for president. Is that true? Did you see that? Did I miss something like you know, this? <laughs> no, I, I didn't see it. Um, but one of the reasons the election was so close is that Brian Kemp, who uh, kept his distance, shall we say, from Walker while he was you know, running for re-election as governor, uh, put his uh, campaign organization wholeheartedly um, into Herschel Walker for the runoff. And Kemp's got a pretty formidable organization in um, in Georgia, which is one of the reasons it was so close. But I think that the elephant in the room when we're talking about Georgia is the former president, because he is the reason Herschel Walker was the candidate in the first place. He is the hand-picked uh, choice of Donald Trump, who has known Herschel Walker since the 1980s. I mean, Herschel Walker was part of the USFL that Trump started. He was on The Apprentice. Um, They go way back. And Trump chose him for no other reason than his celebrity, because he had a, a, you know, a big name. And Trump, in sort of, I think, a racist calculation, thought that he would attract some black votes because he's black. And, of course, just the opposite have happened. But, you know, here we've seen again and again where Trump has fancied himself as a kingmaker. And yet it turns out that the headline should read, you know, not the Midas touch, but the toxic touch, because now not only Georgia, Arizona, Nevada, New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, all of Trump's guys have gone down to defeat. I mean, the only one who who made it uh, was J.D. Vance in Ohio. Every other candidate that Trump endorsed lost. And, you know, in Georgia, he's now been rebuked three times in the Senate races. So I think that's the other big story of of last night is that Trump continues to demonstrate that he's a loser and his candidates are losers. But when Donald Trump ran in 2016, 
He was reviled. He was rebuked. He was made fun of. And yet he knocked them all down one by one. He outlasted them. And he ended up with the presidency in the long run. You know, um, Jonathan Last, who writes as part of the team that publishes The Bulwark, wrote a really interesting article where he said that what bothers him about this supposed Republican movement away from Donald Trump What bothers him is that it's not based in the fact that, oh, by the way, this man was an unfit president. He is unfit to be president again. He is basically a bad, amoral human being, and we should never vote for him. He's saying that's not the argument you're getting from Republicans. What you're getting is, oh, look, none of his candidates won. He's a loser. He can't. He can't win. His his power doesn't extend to other candidates. And Jonathan Last argued that the problem with that is if Donald Trump starts getting popular public support, starts getting thousands of people at his rallies again who are waving his crazy signs and lapping up all of his nonsense, that if your only argument is he's not a winner, that is an argument that can go out the window if he starts winning as opposed to he's a bad man, which he will be whether he wins a big crowd at his rallies or not. And he thinks the same way he thinks Donald Trump thinks. I showed these guys once. I'm going to show them again. They are weak and they will fall in line. Thoughts, Chris? There's no question that the leadership of the Republican Party until very recently Uh, has been a combination of cowardly and cynical. Cowardly because they were afraid, quaking in their boots, to stand up to Trump for fear that he would primary them, that he would support opposition in the primary. And cynical because they knew very well that what he was saying about the elections and COVID and everything else uh, was a lie. And they were willing to put up, uh, as you suggest, with a a pathological liar, a a cheat, a a fraud, um, a man who now we know socializes with white supremacists who deny the Holocaust. Um, So they were willing to put up with all that because their base was energized. You know, is there evidence now? Um, We haven't seen, you know, a lot of polling. It's very early. But here, I, I think where there's some you know, danger in, in the argument that you're raising, which is it depends on how crowded the Republican field is. Because, you know, last time there were 16 uh, candidates and Trump knocked, you know, knocked them all over uh, only by winning, you know, 20, 30 percent of the vote. But that's all you need with a big field. So I think if Republicans are serious, um, they're going to have to narrow the field uh, easier said than done, but if it becomes a, you know, DeSantis-Trump matchup or a Kemp matchup and, you, you know, there are only two or three candidates, then I think Trump has a harder time. It's hard to see the future in this, and we can't, you know, overlook the, the, legal, um, the, the legal hammer that's going to be coming down over the next uh, year for sure. Um, and, and that's got to have an, an effect as well. But I do sense 
um, you know, in, you know, looking at his announcement for his campaign. And since then, just the a, a lack of assignment uh, of, of enthusiasm. It's sort of like, you know, the fat Elvis, right? Everybody's seen <laughs> the act and it doesn't have the same pizzazz or charisma that it wants. It's getting tired and old. And I, I'm just getting that sense through even what I'm reading in, in conservative media and seeing on Fox, there isn't the enthusiasm that there was even as recently as 2020. But do you think that's because he's just getting started? He hasn't had a time, hasn't had a chance uh, to crank up the fanaticism machine. You know, I just I just am, you know, I, I agree with you. I agree. It's right now. Everything seems to be low energy and the people following him seem to be a smaller group all the time. But I worry that that's just because he hasn't put all of his heart and soul into it yet. I'm, I'm, I worry about these things, Chris. <laughs> well, the other thing to think about is, you know, we are, the cliche in journalism is always follow the money. And the big money is not there. Uh, you know, uh, Ken Griffin, who was not, you know, a big Trump supporter at all, you know, he has called on other donors to shun Trump. Um, I just don't see the, the the sort of money names. I mean, I'm sure there will be some, um, you know, I mean, perhaps the the E-lines of the world. Uh, but a lot of the the Republican main big money is 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 going with, you know, clearly going to be going in another direction. You know, at this point, probably DeSantis. Um, so I think the money, I think the enthusiasm, I think the legal troubles and yes, the losses, the losses in in Arizona and Nevada and New Hampshire and Pennsylvania. Um, I, I think those losses are significant and they they have hurt his brand. Hmm. God, I hope you're right. I am. Um, I, I haven't really done a deep dive at all into Ron DeSantis, but I think it's interesting that the pundits who are appearing on cable TV who have been there was one journalist and a couple of just um, commentators who have followed DeSantis's career more closely, and they've all said the same thing that a little bit of this guy goes a long way and that he's not charismatic and that he's he's dull and um and uninteresting i don't know if you have any sense of that or even if he is those things if it'll matter the question is whether he can play beyond florida you know he exactly. became pop- he became popular in florida uh, because he kept the state open during COVID, and he was rewarded politically for that. And Florida, which was once a purple state, a state that Barack Obama won, has now become solidly red. Uh, and DeSantis is extremely popular, as as Brian Kemp is extremely popular in Georgia. I think for both of them, that's a great question. I think neither has the charisma of of a Donald Trump. And so once they leave their local stages and get on a national stage, uh, it is easy to see how Trump's personality can prevail. But one thing I have noticed in the polling, uh, and there have been a lot of of sort of the MAGA Republican uh, polling studies that have come out, and it's it's lower by about 10 percentage points than it was in 2016 and even 2020. Instead of in the 30s, it's now in the low 20s. So, yeah, it's there. It's enthusiastic. Trump can count on it till the day he dies. 
but it's just not as uh, as important or as vibrant and, and enthusiastic as it once was. And again, we don't know. You know, once these indictments, uh, assuming at least one indictment comes down, I think that there's going to be great, great reluctance. Could he still win the Republican primary? Yes. Could he win a general election? I don't think so. Really? I'm talking with Chris Beery. He is the journalist in residence at DePaul University. We have been talking about the election in Georgia. We have been talking about Donald Trump. We are going to continue to talk about the news and politics of the day when we come right back. If you want to join our conversation, give us a call, 773-763-9278, 773-763-9278. Uh, Chris Beery and I will be right back. Information is power. Stay informed to know what's going on. Staying informed gives me the power of knowledge. I wake up. I need to know what happened. I turn on the radio. Because information is power. WCPT 820. Where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. And I am joined by Chris Bury. He is the journalist in residence at DePaul University. And uh, Chris, you know, once a month... We do kind of a panel. Uh, Mark Jacob, former editor at the Trib and the Sun-Times. Jennifer Schulze, former news director at Channel 9. And I get together and we talk about what we see in journalism, particularly as journalists cover candidates, cover campaigns. And from everything I've read and everything we have discussed, the consensus seems to be that business as usual you know, doing reporting the way I did it in the 80s and 90s, um, that that's just simply not a model that works for where we are now. You're in a very interesting spot because you lived all those decades as a reporter and you are currently teaching the next generations of people who will be doing that. What do you think has to be done differently by reporters in 2024, and are they up to the task? We have to be much more aggressive in identifying false information, uh, disinformation. Um, We have to hold candidates, uh, public officials, corporate executives to account. And if their statements are false, we have to... Um, you know, point that out right away. And I think that's the biggest change that we've seen in the last few years. I think it took a while for news organizations to call out lies for the reasons that you suggested. You know, we grew up in an environment where political parties would disagree and generally um, in in good faith and we could report on on policy and what one candidate said and the other and what one proposed and so on. But now when we have presidents of the United States and their acolytes telling bold-faced lies about election results and doing their best to damage institutions and democracy, then we have to be so much more vigilant. And that's what I'm trying to convey to my students is that the era in which they're coming of age uh, is really different. They have to be really on guard. They have to double check and, and triple check their facts. 
And if someone makes a false claim, put it right in the lead. You know, don't bury it. Um, don't couch it in, in euphemisms. And that's an un- unfortunate um, change, but that's what we, you know, we have to do. You know, you have a, you know, a, a gubernatorial candidate in Arizona, Carrie Lake, you know, who the election's been certified now. The last holdout county has voted, and yet she is still, um, you know, going on with this dance, uh, this, this lie that the election was stolen. And here's someone who should really know better because she was a television anchor woman in the Phoenix market. Uh, and to me, that's doubly disgusting because she was a journalist. She knows better, and yet she's willing to feed into this new, you know, I don't know what you call it, a new stream um, of the right that is perfectly okay with lying about democracy, even if they damage it. So I guess we have to be more aggressive and more vigilant. The problem is, you know, the, the journalism model economically, as we know, is just not doing well. CNN just announced a bunch of layoffs. So did uh, Gannett. So print and broadcast, um, there aren't enough journalists to do the job that's needed to be done to protect our democracy. Well, I had this discussion with a guest earlier in the week was like, you know, instead of just reporting on you know, whatever, you know, happened that morning, you know, news organizations should be really digging into the problems of of uh, people who need housing, the homeless situation and and really, you know, investigating this. And I said, you know, I, it's not that I don't agree with you, but, you know, what news organization, that kind of stuff, that kind of kind of reporting takes time and uh, takes money and. I don't see too many organizations, oh, yes, let's hire another hundred reporters so we can do some real meaningful journalism. I don't see that happening, Chris. And that's the problem on the local level. You know, my my hat goes off to the hardworking reporters, you know, at the Chicago outlets, uh, you know, the, the, the television stations, radio stations, the newspapers, but... They're all working with skeleton staffs. I mean, look at what's happened to the the Tribune since it was purchased by Alden Capital. Yes, there are still some good reporters, and yes, there's still investigative reporting going on, but it's been hollowed out. And the same can be said for the Chicago Sun-Times and other news organizations. You know, it, it does take time, and it takes lots of money. And so while we're seeing a couple of national news organizations doing relatively well, NPR, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post. Most local news organizations are struggling terribly, and they're lucky to cover, you know, the big fire in town. So the idea that they're going to get, you know, and do the sort of in-depth reporting that we need as as a functioning democracy, it's just not going to be there until they start figuring out, bigger revenue sources because it, it, it's a it's a struggle right now i have to tell you i was just reading where npr was talking about cuts and layoffs supposedly they've lost a lot of their corporate sponsorships so it, it is there not even npr doesn't seem to be untouched by this yeah that's too bad because for a while they were hiring um, and, and pretty aggressively, and, and that's you know that, that that's really sad. But you know, I've, I've been seeing on Twitter the last week. I mean, all the layoffs at 
uh, you know, again, that paper is all over the United States, and and certainly the CNN layoffs are um, are very significant. And these, uh, some of these are not the on camera, you know, people that are you know your, our audience is used to seeing, and it's the it's the writers and it's the off air reporters and the fact checkers and the copy editors, and when those people start losing their jobs, the whole product suffers. It's just the the, the way it is. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, it is. Do you do you see what I see? It. I don't remember back in the eighties and nineties. God, I sound like a dinosaur. Um, <laughs> I used to, you know, we would get all the newspaper back when we actually had a budget for newspapers in our newsroom, and you could look at all the different stories. And I, um, it seems to me that there's there have been some. I don't know if it's stylistic. I don't know if it's coming from the top. Some changes in the New York Times. I never see a single headline anymore. It's like, um, you know, new jobs report, 100,000 jobs added. That that used to be a headline. Now it's 100,000 jobs added. But can Biden sustain this pace? There, it it's always seems to be the here's the we feel guilty saying this good thing that's happened. So let's make sure we add a negative. Is it just me? Or do you see that, too? You know, I, I do. I was just watching a, a cable news show uh, the other night and there was a, a uh, an analyst on. And this was uh, th- this was uh, after the election talking about, you know, the terrible economy on CNN and not one of the hosts pushed back and said, wait a minute, terrible economy. Yes, inflation is uh, is uncomfortable, but we just had another jobs report with over 200,000 new jobs. Our unemployment rate um, is extremely low by historical standards. And the idea that they would just let this guest get away with pushing what is a clear talking point uh, troubled me. And I, I do think that um, it's the responsibility of wh- whether you're on the air or in print, you can't let these things go unchallenged if they're just not true. I uh, I hate to sound like I'm I'm bragging here, but I think one big difference between journalists of a few decades ago and journalists now is a the follow-up question and b the holding somebody to account the wait a minute wait a minute that's not right you know that's not what happened or that's not what you said three months ago it's like there it's like you know they sit there and i'm not even talking about newbies who maybe we can forgive for that kind of thing i'm talking about people who host these sunday morning news shows you know, they're, they get a, a Lindsey Graham sitting there and giving them some revisionist history, and they just sit there and don't push back. I think it was at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. I don't know if it was this year or previous year. The comedian made fun of, of Chuck Todd. I, they were saying, like, oh, you know, Chuck Todd this. Oh, wait a minute. We can't do that because that would require a follow-up question, and we know he doesn't do those. I mean, what yeah, happened to us? That's a lost art. And one of the clips I always uh, play for my students is my former boss, Ted Koppel, interviewing uh, Al Campanis when he was the general manager of the Los Angeles Dodgers. And he was on, we were celebrating the anniversary of uh, Jackie Robinson. And he comes on a nightline ostensibly to talk about that. And Koppel says, well, why aren't there more black men? 
managers and, and coaches. And Campanis you know, start talking about, oh, they don't have the faculties and, and <sighs> Ted, you know, and Ted's listening, thank God. And then he just drills down for the next 20 minutes and Campanis keeps digging himself a hole because Ted was listening to what he said. And, of course, I think the, the show was on a Tuesday by Friday. Campanis had been fired by the Dodgers because Koppel had the, you know, the intelligence and the uh, situational awareness to say, hey, this guy's full of it, and I'm going to expose it on national television live. Do you think that's it anymore? Because I sometimes look at, especially, um, you know, we just had a midterm election. We had a lot of statewide races. We had some debates. And sometimes I get the feeling that whether it's due to inexperience or what, people are so focused on what's my next question, what's my next question, that they don't listen to the answers that they get. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's the when, when I'm trying to teach interview skills to my students, that's the number one thing I stress is you got to listen. Sure, you want to prepare, but you have to take the interview where, you know, where it flows. And if someone says something that could be newsworthy or needs a little bit more explanation or isn't clear, then it's your responsibility to go there and, mm-hmm. and not and not just go to your next question, because the audience the audience wants you to do it, right? They are on your side as an interviewer. They know when someone is buffaloing them and they're cheering for, you know, the Jake Tapper or the Ted Koppel or Dan, Dan Abash or whoever to, to step in. They, you know, they are, you know, you are their advocate at that point and you are representing the viewer and the listener. So, yeah, that's what I try to teach my students. When I used to get an assignment and I would go out with the crew Based on what I already knew or what I had been able to learn, I used to get out my notebook and I would sketch out a script. Maybe I'd sketch out some questions I wanted to ask somebody, but I would sketch out a script. This is how I think. Yeah, because it just uh, based on what I know, here's how I see this story going. I will tell you, never once did that survive. Never once did my idea of, okay, they're probably going to say this. This is what the, the, these are the visuals. This is how the whole story is going to lay out. Never one time did that pre-script survive the actual story. Um, because in, yeah. even my interviews, you know, okay, these are the 10 questions I really want to ask this person. And the very first question, you're listening, and it takes you in a different direction. Well, wait, well, wait a minute. You just said this. Let's talk a little more about that. Again, the questions that I would script for myself pretty much threw those out the window as well. Because you go, those are the best interviews. You get the best information and the most heartfelt statements when you listen and you go where the person is taking you. Yeah, absolutely. One of my uh, favorite bosses of uh, all time um, had a saying when he would send us out on assignment. You know, we'd be packing up to go to Haiti or wherever. And his last words as we were headed out the door were, uh, surprise me. And, and I love <laughs> that because uh, that that's the essence and that's the fun, actually, of, of journalism is finding surprises. I've also worked for the other kind of boss who, if you didn't come back with the story that was the lead of the, 
you know, the AP or the New York Times that morning. It's like, well, what's wrong with you? They have this mm-hmm. story. Well, well, I found a different story, and it's newer and fresher and different. Uh, yep. That's why I like the boss who said surprise me, because I think those are really important instructions for, for journalists going out the door. Chris Beery is the DePaul journalist in residence. Uh, we are going to take a break, and we are going to go to the phone lines when we come right back after this. There's no excuse to miss Joan Esposito. It's number one on my stereo. Live, local, and progressive. You can listen to her daily at WCPT820.com on your computer or phone. WCPT820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT820. I'm joined by Chris Beery, DePaul journalist in residence, and we are going to take your calls now. So let's get started. Ron is calling in from Chicago. Ron, you're on with me and Chris Beery. Go ahead. Yes, uh, I was listening to a uh, right-wing media station today, and uh, they were begging begging for black voters to join the Republican Party because we love you and need you. So the Republicans, they must be... Uh, Worried that without strong um, black support, they will not be uh, get the twenty twenty four election. Well, you know, it's interesting that you say that, and I want to get Chris to weigh in on this because I was listening to an interview with um, some Republican lawmaker. I think somebody from Congress, and. They were saying much the same thing. Oh, you know, we're weak when it comes to African-American voters, and we've got to shore up that support. Chris, do you think they'll actually do it? it well, it, it would come down to, to policies that help people, uh, regardless of color. So far, we haven't seen any evidence of that. Um, the favored candidate of the Repub- black candidate of the Republicans uh, just lost with zero black support. Um, in Georgia. And the other part of this is interesting. I think that the Democrats have come around to realize that they also have to be more proactive. And when we look at the emerging primary uh, and caucus calendar for 2024, uh, it appears that the Biden administration uh, and and Joe Biden as as a political figure wants to put more emphasis on um, getting black voters involved in the primary system earlier so that South Carolina instead of Iowa uh, would be the first uh, primary and then followed close closely thereafter with Michigan, which is a far more diverse state as well. So I, I think that, you know, I think the Democrats realize that they have to be uh, a little bit more proactive and the Republicans, I don't know. I mean, I think it comes down to policy and, you know, what they can pass to attract different kinds of voters. Hmm. Thank you for the call, Ron. I appreciate it. <clears throat> Let's go back to the phone lines. Bobby, our good friend Bobby is calling from Indiana. Bobby, you're on with me and Chris Bury. Go ahead. Hello, Joan and Chris. Um, so we finally pretty much know where we stand in the Senate. So my question is, with what the apparent uh, breakdown is going to be in the House, do you folks think that the Democrats will be able somehow to peel off enough reasonable Republicans to be able to ward off some of the worst craziness of the Republicans and maybe get something done? 
Well, Bobby, let's look at that from the opposite side. And we'll, then we'll throw it in Chris Beery's lap because I was, uh, I saw a social media post from Jim Clyburn saying, you know what, Kevin McCarthy, you want to be the next Speaker of the House? Maybe you should call Hakeem Jeffries and see if you can get some Democratic support. Do you think that there's any universe in which that might happen, Chris? And would that lead to maybe some bipartisan stuff? I don't see it. I see Kevin <laughs> McCarthy, um, you know, wanting um, to hold on to uh, a, a slim lead and giving. And so far, it seems to be giving leverage uh, to people like Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, so if that wing of the party, the Trump wing, the MAGA wing, uh, is rewarded with committee assignments and committee chairmanships, I think that will be, um, you know, the, the, the tell. Uh, right now, Marjorie Taylor Greene has been stripped of all her committee assignments. Um, she sits on no committees, uh, you know, because of her crazy statements about uh, Q and stolen elections and other nonsense. And now, you know, she is talking like she's going to be a, a big player in the McCarthy Congress. So, you know, we'll see. I mean, we don't know if McCarthy's going to survive um, as speaker, but... If it's him, I don't see him reaching across the aisle. Hmm. Let's squeeze. Thank you, Bobby. Let's squeeze one last call in. Earl is calling in from Hyde Park. Hey, Earl, you're on with me and Chris Beery. We've got to make it quick. Oh, Earl. Well, that was quick. Oh, okay. <laughs> that was that was even quicker than I thought, Chris. <laughs> Do you honestly think there's a scenario where Kevin McCarthy doesn't become speaker? Probably not. I, I think he's probably going to, to manage the votes. The question is, at what cost? Um, and, you know, what is he is he going to promise away? Uh, you know, we, we obviously saw a very, a very partisan Congress, uh, this last Congress, with very little compromise. Um, every indication is that they're going to go down the Hunter Biden road, uh, which doesn't, you know, doesn't solve the, the problems of the American people. And Voters don't really seem to care. Um, so that's going to be really interesting. And now, you know, there's going to be a big counterweight in, in the Senate where I think the emphasis is going to be on on serious, uh, you know, policy uh, to, you know, to, to solve big problems. I, I think the Senate is where we're going to see the grownups in the next Congress. Hmm. Chris, it is always a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much for spending time with us. And I look forward to our next time together. Always enjoy it, Joan. Thank you very much. That is going to do it for me today. Driving it home with Patty Vasquez is up next. I will be here tomorrow at 2 o'clock. Have a great evening. Stay safe. Good night.